We are going to do a study in the book of Jonah this morning, chapter 1. I know you guys have been in a series called Knowing God, and so I kind of want to just tag on a little piece out of Jonah chapter 1. And uh, let me teach you a secret trick for how to find Jonah in your Bible. Open to the table of contents, look for Jonah, and go to the page it says to. So... Um, how many of you guys are at least somewhat familiar with the story of Jonah, right? Pretty much everybody. Like, especially if you grew up going to Sunday school or church or youth group or whatever, this is a story that you know. Like, if you know what flannel graph is, you know who Jonah is, right? It's one of those stories that, for whatever reason, gets a lot of play um, as a children's story. Right? It's in every children's Bible, every children's Bible video series has this story uh, of Jonah. And when you think of Jonah, what do you think of? The whale or the fish, right? And uh, maybe that's why it's got this crazy fish story that reminds you of Pinocchio or something, but it kind of gets set aside as a children's story. And there's quite a few stories in the Bible that kind of get lumped into that same category. David and Goliath, Daniel and the lion's den, Noah's ark or whatever. We kind of have seen stories like that primarily endure in our faith as children's stories. And uh, I want to ask why real quick. Why does a story like Jonah primarily get lumped into these uh, into this category as a children's Bible story. Let me read you a quote by a guy named Frederick Beekner. And he says, It's not, I suspect, because children particularly want to read them, but more because their elders particularly do not want to read them, or at least do not want to read them for what they actually say. And so we make them instead into fairy tales, which no one has to take seriously. Okay? Kind of harsh, but... The idea is that this is, it's a, it's a crazy story. It's actually a funny story, and it's supposed to be, as we'll see in a moment. Um, but it's a funny story with a very serious message, with a very adult message. And so my hope this morning is to invite you in to the story of Jonah. We'll just do the first chapter and show how this is not just a kid's story, but this is an incredible, incredibly serious word from God to us. And what happens in the story of Jonah is that the worst tendencies that form within the human heart become exposed. And so Jonah, though it uses humor and, and other kind of funny literary tools, actually is dealing with some really serious stuff. And so I'm going to read the entire first chapter of the book of Jonah and uh, invite you to follow along with me. Jonah 1.1. The word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amittai. Go to the great city of Nineveh and preach against it, because its wickedness has come up before me. But Jonah ran away from the Lord and headed for Tarshish. He went down to Joppa, where he found a ship bound for that port. After paying the fare, he went aboard and sailed for Tarshish to flee from the Lord. Then the Lord sent a great wind on the sea, and such a violent storm arose that the ship threatened to break up. All the sailors were afraid, and each cried out to his own God, and they threw the cargo into the sea to lighten the ship. But Jonah had gone below deck, where he lay down and fell into a deep sleep. The captain went to him and said, "'How can you sleep?' Get up and call on your God. Maybe he will take notice of us so that we will not perish. Then the sailors said to each other, Come, let us cast lots to find out who's responsible for this calamity. So they cast lots, and the lot fell on Jonah. So they asked him, Tell us, who's responsible for making all this trouble for us? What kind of work do you do? Where do you come from? What is your country? From what people are you? He answered, I am a Hebrew. I worship the Lord, the God of heaven who made the sea and the dry land. This terrified them, and they asked, what have you done? They knew he was running away from the Lord because he had already told them so. The sea was getting rougher and rougher, so they asked him, what should we do to you to make the sea calm down for us? Pick me up and throw me into the sea, he replied, and it will become calm. I know that it is my fault that this great storm has come upon you. 
Instead, the men did their best to row back to land, but they could not, for the sea grew even wilder than before. Then they cried out to the Lord, Please, Lord, do not let us die for taking this man's life. Do not hold us accountable for killing an innocent man, for you, Lord, have done as you pleased. Then they took Jonah and threw him overboard, and the raging sea grew calm. At this, the men greatly feared the Lord, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows to him. Now the Lord provided a huge fish to swallow Jonah, and Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. And from inside the fish, Jonah prayed to the Lord his God. Will you pray with me? Our Father, we are so thankful for the chance to be here together today. Thankful for this community that you have called together here in Bend and for the work that you are doing in them by your spirit, forming the image of Christ in them, that they may be a representation of your goodness to this city and to the world. So I'm thankful for the great things that you're doing in and through the people of Antioch. And I'm thankful for the chance to be here with them today. Most of all, Father, we're thankful that you are here with us. And so we invite you to work deeply by your spirit in us this morning. Cause us to leave here more joyful, more thankful than when we came. We love you, we trust you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So we're just gonna run through this chapter and... uh, and this is one of, my, one of my favorite books in the Bible. I want to show you a few things about what God has put into this part of his word that is just uh, deeply convicting, challenging, but also inspiring and hopeful. And so in verse 1, the introduction is that the word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amittai. And so there's a couple things we need to know about the book of Jonah. The first is that the book of Jonah is what you might call a prophetic narrative. It's a story that communicates the word of God to his people. So most of the other prophetic books in the Bible contain long chunks of vision or prayers or sermons, but Jonah communicates God's word through a story. And so it's not too much of a stretch to say Jonah is a parable. And when I say parable, I don't mean that it's not historically true, but I mean that its primary purpose is just like Jesus' parables to explain the reality of God's kingdom. Okay, so Jonah is a prophetic narrative. And the second thing we need to know is that Jonah's a funny book. It's supposed to be. Okay, there's, there's all kinds of humor that the storyteller uses to get his point across. It's full of irony and sarcasm and hyperbole. And so as you read through the story, uh, it's okay to laugh, specifically at Jonah, because he's this comedic figure. He's the Michael Scott of the story, right? He's always doing the wrong thing. He somehow always can't quite get it right and always messes up. And so it's okay to laugh at him. Okay, so the word of God comes to Jonah And God says in verse 2, Go to the great city of Nineveh and preach against it, because its wickedness has come up before me. So God calls Jonah to go to Nineveh. Now, Nineveh was the capital of Assyria. And Nineveh had the reputation of being the biggest, baddest city around. Right? Like, their their reputation was when they would invade uh, enemy nations, they would capture enemies and torture them by skinning them alive. Okay, this, these are bad people, right? And so listen in Nahum chapter 3, uh, how one of the other prophets describes the, the city of Nineveh. Woe to the city of blood, full of lies, full of plunder, never without victims. The crack of whips, the clatter of wheels, galloping horses and jolting chariots. Charging cavalry, flashing swords, and glittering spears. Many casualties, piles of dead, bodies without number, people stumbling over corpses. Okay, sounds like a fun place, right? Sounds like somewhere you would want to visit. That's where God calls Jonah to go. 
to this brutal, violent, bloodthirsty city, and he calls him to preach against it, okay? So in verse 3, how does Jonah respond to God's call? But Jonah ran away from the Lord and headed for Tarshish. He went down to Joppa where he found a ship bound for that port. And after paying the fare, he went aboard and sailed for Tarshish to flee from the Lord. Okay, so God says, I want you to go to Nineveh. Instead, Jonah goes down to Joppa and heads for Tarshish. Let me show you a map just to kind of help you give it, get a picture of what we're talking about here. So the book of 2 Kings chapter 14 talks about Jonah, son of Amittai, who's from a little town in Israel called Gath-Hefer. Okay, and God calls Jonah <clears throat> to go from Gath-Hefer about 500 miles to the east to the city of Nineveh, which would be roughly nor northern Iraq, modern day, right? And uh, so Jonah instead, next slide, goes down to Joppa, okay? He gets on a ship and heads for, next slide, Tarshish. <laughs> All right, now you get it, right? <laughs> this isn't just a little bit of disobedience. This is Jonah turning and booking it and running as far away as he possibly can in the opposite direction. 2,500 miles to the west when God called him to go 500 miles to the east. So instead of going to northern Iraq, he goes to southern Spain, which most of us would if we had to choose between the two. But either way, this is extreme disobedience, right? And this is, if you're a parent of young kids, this is something you experience on a regular basis. My wife and I have three little kids, six, four, and two. Our youngest, Myla, uh, two-year-olds, they do this exact same thing all the time. When you ask them to come to you for whatever reason, they just have to stop and then turn and run the other way, right? Especially after bath time. I don't know why that is, but little kids when they're naked, they just feel the need to run away, and it's kind of funny, right? So uh, that's what Jonah's doing. That's the humor of it. He's doing the naked baby run away from God, <laughs> trying to get as far away as he possibly can. So Tarshish was, I mean, it's literally as far away as he could possibly go. Like if you go any further, you pass through the Straits of Gibraltar and you're out into the Atlantic Ocean where people just didn't go. So that is the ends of the earth. It's the exact same way we would talk about Timbuktu or something like that. Jonah is fleeing from God. Now what, what, what's going on here? Why does Jonah go to Tarshish? We might think that he was scared of the Ninevites, these brutal, bloodthirsty people. Maybe he was afraid that they would capture him or kill him, or maybe he, would, he thought that his message would be ignored or that he would be mocked as a Hebrew prophet. What was it that Jonah was running away from? I don't think it was Nineveh. Verse 3 tells us twice, just so we don't miss it. First, at the beginning, Jonah ran away from the Lord, and then at the very end, and sailed for Tarshish to flee from the Lord. Okay, so Jonah isn't just running away from Nineveh, is he? He's running away from God. And the storyteller makes sure that we get that. So here's where the prophetic message of the story of Jonah becomes, begins to become clear. Remember, this is a prophetic narrative originally given to Israel. And so at this point in the story, the nation of Israel, God's covenant people, have broken their covenant with God. And they have fled from him. And they have essentially assimilated themselves into the surrounding nations. So if you remember, the original deal God had with Israel is that you will be my people. I will be your God. I will bless you and make you a blessing to the nations. But instead, what's happened is Israel has, has, has broken covenant, and they have run away from God. And so we start to see this is the picture that Jonah is trying to paint, people running from God. And so, of course, this is where you and I begin to see ourselves in this story as well, isn't it? We also, like Jonah, if we're honest, have to confess that we have a propensity to turn and run away from God, don't we? 
Even those of us that know God really well, even those of us that love him deeply and have followed him for most of our lives, there's something within us that wants to distance ourselves from him, distract ourselves from him. There's something within us that shows up on a near daily basis that wants to push ourselves away from God and reject his authority and his lordship over our life because we want to be in charge of our, ourselves. We want to live our own lives. We want independence and autonomy. And you see that in Jonah. He doesn't want to do what God wants him to do. He wants to do what he wants to do. And every single one of us, if we're honest, if we're paying attention, there's something within us, our sinful flesh that wants to push away from God, turn away from God. And so the story of Jonah begins to illuminate that sinful bent within us and give us a warning of what happens when we do turn and run from God, but it also gives us a picture of how God responds when his people push away from him. So look what happens uh, then in verse four. Jonah has run, verse 4, Then the Lord sent a great wind on the sea. Such a violent storm arose that the ship threatened to break up. Okay, so you might expect that if Jonah runs away from God, God would just say, fine, go. I'll find somebody else to go to Nineveh. But God doesn't, does he? As Jonah runs away, God begins to unfold this rescue mission for Jonah. Jonah's running, and God is chasing after him. And the first part of this mission is that God sends this storm. Because God knows that the worst thing for Jonah would be to let him run away. Okay, so God isn't punishing Jonah for his disobedience as much as as he is sending a storm as a divine interruption to slow down Jonah in his flight from God. This is a gracious storm. Now, of course, it doesn't feel like that at the time, but sometimes God sends storms to keep us close to him, doesn't he? Some of you know exactly what I'm talking about. So God sends this storm. Now, verse 5 all the sailors were afraid and cried out to each other, or each cried out to his own God, and they threw their cargo into the sea to lighten the ship. Okay, so it's important in this chapter to pay attention to the language that the storyteller uses to refer to deity. Okay, so sometimes he uses the word God, either with an uppercase or a lowercase g, to talk about the deity, and other times he uses the word Lord, which in your Bible is most likely in all caps, right? Or a big L and small ord in caps, right? So God is, if you don't know, is kind of the generic word for, for deity in the Bible. But the Lord is a specific name. It's a reference to a specific deity, specifically Yahweh, the God of Israel. This is God's covenant name for to, that he's given his people to call him. It's almost like a pet name. It's an intimate name. It's a personal name. So when you see Lord in all caps, that's not just God in general, but that's specific reference to the God of Israel, the covenant God of his people. Okay, so pay attention to that. As the sailors are afraid on the ship and they're throwing out the cargo and praying, who does it say they're praying to in verse 5? Each to their own God, right? Lowercase g. So the idea is that these are polytheists. They believe in a whole multitude of gods that govern the universe, and they, in this case, they don't know which god they've offended and need to appease. So it's kind of just a free-for-all. Everybody choose your favorite god and pray, and we'll just kind of shotgun the heavens and hope that we hit the right god, right? So they're all just kind of frantically, desperately praying out to all of the gods, okay? So everybody's praying, crying out, except for Jonah. Where's Jonah? Verse, second half of verse 5. Jonah had gone below deck where he lay down and fell into a deep sleep, okay? Everybody's upstairs screaming, praying, and Jonah's downstairs sleeping. 
The author does something really interesting in Jonah chapter 1. And if you pay attention, you'll notice that he uses the words up and down intentionally. So it, the NIV doesn't capture it as well as some of other, the other translations. But originally in verse 2, God's word comes to Jonah. NIV starts out, go to the great city. Does anybody else have something before go? What does it say in your Bible? Arise. Arise. Or get up. So God's word to Jonah begins with arise, get up. But instead, Jonah runs away from the Lord. He goes down to Joppa. And then he goes, it says in NIV that he goes aboard the ship. But really, it's closer to saying he goes down onto the ship. Right? And then he goes down to the lower deck. And now, in verse 6, he's gone down into, or verse 5, he's gone down into a sleep. Okay, do you, see the, do you see the picture? God calls Jonah up, and Jonah goes down, 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 down. This is the trajectory of the sinful life. This is the author's way of showing us what happens when we reject God, when we run from him, when we refuse to engage with him, but rather flee from him. He goes, it sets off this downward spiral. And eventually, you end up asleep. So Jonah's slumber is this picture of a guy who's checked out. He's disengaged. He's disconnected from God. He's spiritually dead. It's a picture of apathy that has taken him to a place where he's totally missing it. Okay, verse six. The captain went to him and said, how can you sleep? Get up and call on your God. Maybe he will take notice of us so that we will not perish. So again, the captain comes and says to this guy who's gone down, 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 get up. Get up and call on your God, on your lowercase God. So here's the irony that's happening here. This polytheistic ship captain is trying to convince Jonah, the Hebrew prophet, that he should try praying. Right? So Jonah's a prophet. He's a professional man of God. Prayer is like what he does. He shouldn't need some salty old sea dog to tell him that he should try praying to his God, right? It's just, it's ridiculous. It'd be like if you go to the doctor and he wants to listen to your heart and he can't figure out how, you would go, maybe the stethoscope? He'd go, oh yeah, of course, right? Like you shouldn't need to remind him of that. That's how far down Jonah has gone. This polytheistic captain needs to suggest that Jonah tries praying. Okay? Verse 7. Then the sailors said to each other, Come, let us cast lots to find out who's responsible for this calamity. They cast lots, and the lots fell on Jonah. So they asked him, Tell us, who's responsible for making all this trouble for us? What kind of work do you do? Where do you come from? Where's your, what's your country? What people are you from? Okay, so they cast lots. It's basically this kind of dice rolling game, or it's like spin the bottle. And they just kind of throw this thing out there, and inexplicably, it, it works, right? I got nothing. I don't know why it works in the story, but it points to Jonah, Okay, and so they realize that he's the problem and they begin to interrogate him and ask him all these questions. Okay, so then verse 9, Jonah answered, I am a Hebrew and I worship the Lord, the God of heaven who made the sea and dry land. Okay, so Jonah tells them that he's a Hebrew, that he's one of God's covenant people, that he worships who? Yahweh, the covenant God of Israel. And he says specifically, the God of heaven who made the sea and dry land. Okay, this is another comical moment. Because where are they at this moment? On the sea. Where do they want to be? On the dry land. And you have all these sailors that are praying out to this multitude of deities. 
you know, and the, the God of the sun, the God of the moon, the God of fertility. They're throwing all these prayers up, having no idea which God they need to appease. And Jonah comes out and says, yeah, I actually worship the God of the land and the sea. <laughs> and they're going, what? Why didn't you say something? Like, you've been just sitting here watching us, throwing up all these random prayers this whole time? You are one who worships the God who made the land and the sea. Like, why didn't you say anything? Extra gloves, right? You didn't say anything this whole time? So Jonah says he worships Yahweh. And, he, and then, he, as the readers know, Jonah's been running away from Yahweh. Okay, so it's confusing all of a sudden. How can Jonah say that he worships or fears the God he's running away from. And the author kind of doesn't resolve that for us, does he? He just lets us wrestle with the idea that here you have a man who claims to be a worshiper of the one true God, and yet there is nothing in his life that looks any different than everyone else around him. And you're kind of left with this contradiction. How can you say that you worship the God you're running away from? And the author doesn't resolve it. He just throws it out there for us to wrestle with. And why? We remember who this story was first read by. It's a prophetic narrative for the nation of Israel. And so... There's a tradition within Judaism that goes way, way back that on the Day of Atonement every year on Yom Kippur, Jewish people read the book of Jonah together. And when they come to the end of the book of Jonah, there's an interesting liturgy that they recite together, a responsive, uh, a responsive reading. The book of Jonah is read and Israel, or the Jews, would respond, we are Jonah. So they get that this isn't just a story about a dude and a fish that would one day make a great VeggieTales movie. They get that this is a story about them. About not only their rejection and fleeing from God, but about the contradiction that they are. God's covenant people who are living lives that are virtually indistinguishable from anyone else around them. And so what goes from being kind of this really hard to understand contradiction when you just see it in Jonah, when we, as the people of God today, as followers of Jesus, when we join with Israel in saying, no, we are Jonah, then all of a sudden this story makes a whole lot more sense, doesn't it? This story makes perfect sense to me. Because I claim to be a follower of Jesus. But there are so many parts of my life that look nothing like his, if I'm honest. I call myself a Christian and yet, I often go around thinking things, doing things, saying things that Christ never would. And so I begin to see myself in Jonah as one who claims to worship the God that he pushes away from. And so the storyteller masterfully hangs up this painting in this narrative that when we look really closely at, we realize this isn't a painting at all, this is a mirror. And it kind of hurts, doesn't it? <laughs> this exposes so much of the inconsistency and hypocrisy in our own lives. Okay, and he just leaves it there. So how do the sailors respond when they find out that Jonah worships Yahweh? Verse 10, this terrified them. And they asked, what have you done? They knew he was running away from the Lord because he'd already told them so. So they're terrified. Like, why would you mess with the creator God? Why would you mess with the God who made the land and the sea? You think you can hide from him? 
Like, where in God's world are you going to hide from God? That doesn't seem like a wise decision, is kind of what they're saying. They're terrified. And then the, the storyteller kind of parenthetically whispers in our ears, they already knew he was running away from the Lord, because he already told them so. We don't know exactly when that happened. Maybe when he was buying his ticket for the trip to Tarshish, and they kind of go, business or pleasure? And he goes, ah, neither, fleeing from God. And we're like, all right, that's kind of weird, but have a nice trip. So uh, then verse 11 the sea was getting rougher and rougher, so they asked him, what should we do to you to make the sea calm down for us? Jonah says, pick me up and throw me into the sea, and it will become calm. I know that it is my fault that this great storm has come upon you. So they asked Jonah what they should do, and Jonah says, throw me into the sea. Now, I don't know about you, that's a surprising solution if I'm in Jonah's shoes. That wouldn't be my first thought. Just throw me overboard. My first thought would be, okay, clearly... This storm is from Yahweh, the God who I'm running away from. So maybe if we just turn the ship around and head back to Nineveh, then the sea will, will calm down. And Jonah kind of thinks about that. Yeah, we could go back to Nineveh. No, why don't you guys just throw me overboard, right? Like, that's how far down Jonah has gone. He would rather die then turn back to God. Like sin has seriously messed him up. He's not thinking clearly. He would rather die than turn back to God. So in verse 13, instead, the men did their best to row back to land, but they could not, for the sea grew even wilder before. So the sailors aren't ready to throw them overboard. They try to row back, but it doesn't work. So what do they do? Verse 14, then they cried out to the Lord, please, Lord, do not let us die for taking this man's life. Do not hold us accountable for killing an innocent man. For you, Lord, have done as you pleased. And so this whole time, if you'll remember, these sailors have been praying to all of their lowercase g gods, throwing out these prayers to every god that they can think of, hoping that somebody will hear them. And then finally, in verse 14, they cry out to who? To the Lord, to Yahweh. Here's the great irony. The Lord God, who made the sea and dry land, is finally addressed. And guess who doesn't do it? It's not Jonah. The first prayer to Yahweh in this entire story is these polytheistic sailors. Did you notice that? Nobody has talked to Yahweh yet in the entire story. Verse 1, God talks to Jonah. In verse 2, you would expect some sort of response, some sort of reply, even if it was... Even if it wasn't super positive and, and cooperative, you would ex at least expect Jonah to, to speak, to wrestle with God, to even argue with God. But instead, Jonah just runs. And he, and he never, never speaks to God this entire time. Even when the storm hits and the captain told him to pray to Yahweh, he didn't do it. And even when they all find out that he's a Hebrew prophet and tell him to pray to Yahweh, he doesn't do it. And finally, somebody prays to Yahweh, and it's not Jonah. And so they pray to Yahweh and say, okay, Yahweh, it seems like you want us to throw your guy overboard. That seems weird to us. We'd rather not do it. But if you want us to, we'll, we'll go ahead and do that then. Okay, so they're kind of hesitantly going along with this. And then verse 15, they take Jonah and threw him overboard and, all, and the raging seas grew to calm. And at this, the men greatly feared the Lord and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows to him. So they throw him overboard, the sea grows calm, and all these pagan sailors fear the God of Israel. And they offer sacrifices to him and make vows to him. Sacrifices and vows. That's covenant language, right? And so the picture is, and, and many people think that what, what we're intended to, uh, to, to think here is that 
In the Old Testament, if you wanted to make sacrifices and vows to Yahweh, what did that involve? Well, it involved building an altar and slaughtering animals, right? So chances are this isn't something that they would just do on the ship in the middle of the sea. But the idea is that once they got back to land, they, they built an altar, they made sacrifices, they made vows to God. The picture is that this is a conversion story. We don't know that for sure, but it sure seems like that's what, we're what the author's trying to say. This isn't just, hey, thanks God for saving me and then back to their other gods, but this is vows and sacrifices. This is conversion, coming in to the covenant family of God, which is this crazy moment. So here's, here's what's nuts. Jonah is this Hebrew prophet representing the nation of Israel, and he is called by God to be a blessing to the nations, specifically to bring God's word to the city of Nineveh and to call people from their false gods and from their sin and to turn to Yahweh and, and, uh, and repent. And even as Jonah is running away from God, God still uses him to do just that. On this ship, you have possibly hundreds of these pagan sailors that have now been brought in to the family of God because of Jonah and not because of Jonah, anything Jonah did right. <laughs> but in spite of him, God uses him somehow to carry out his plan, his mission, and draw people to himself. And so in Jonah, we have this disobedient, prayerless prophet who God has chosen to be his representative, and somehow we see that God's not limited by Jonah's imperfection. It's almost like God takes joy in working in the negative space. Like maybe God really does use crooked sticks to draw straight lines. Maybe God's holy hands really do pick up and use dirty tools. If he can use a disobedient, prayerless prophet like Jonah to accomplish his will and even draw others to himself, how comforting is that? Like that means that maybe he could even use me. I can't tell you how often I've struggled with this feeling of inadequacy to live the life that God has called me to. And I don't just mean as a pastor, but I mean just as a Christ follower. To call myself a follower of Jesus, like that's a pretty outrageous claim, right? Like really? The perfect man? <laughs> that's who you are like? <laughs> and I've, I've struggled throughout my story with just trying to figure out like how, 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 how do I do this? How do I live as a representative of Christ in this world when I know I'm so screwed up and fearful and broken and sinful? Like, how does that work? And in fact, there have been times where I've been like literally paralyzed in conversations because I so badly don't want to misrepresent Christ. I so badly, when talking maybe to a non-Christian friend, don't want to say something that's going to make Jesus look bad, that I say nothing at all. Because I'm fearful, doubtful, that God could actually work through someone like me. And maybe some of you know what that feels like as well. But if God can use Jonah, he can use us. He isn't limited by our imperfections. And he loves bringing glory to his name by working through flawed, sinful people like you and I. Okay, so that's really good news. Now, here's where that's dangerous news. Because some of you might hear that and say, hey, I guess it doesn't matter then how we live. Because if God can use sinful people, then why not just be sinful people? Why not just go out and live however the hell we want, and God's going to do what God's going to do? Would that be a good conclusion to draw from this story? It wouldn't. Here's why. Where is Jonah at this point in the story? He's at the bottom of the sea. <laughs> 
He's gone as far down as he possibly can. He's not in a good place. So to say, hey, we can just go ahead and and sin and live however we want and everything's going to be fine. No, things aren't fine. He's drowning. He's gone down, 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 down. He's far away from God. It's, It's this picture of spiritual deadness. He's not a role model. You don't want to go where he is going in this story. So yes, God can use us even though we're flawed, sinful people. But ultimately... Sin will cause destruction. It will tear us apart inside. It will tear apart our relationships with others. It's going to hurt us. So, if the story ended here, it wouldn't be a happy ending, right? You have a guy sinking in the sea. But actually, things get even worse. Verse 17. Now the Lord provided a huge fish to swallow Jonah, and Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. Okay, so we don't have time to talk about the fish. Um, I'll leave that for Ken for next time. Um, But Jonah gets swallowed by this fish, and all we need to know is that from the sailor's perspective, this wouldn't be a happy ending, would it? Like they wouldn't look at that fish and go, oh, wow, God graciously provided a fish to swallow Jonah. They don't see that as good news. They'd be like, oh my gosh, did you see that? That fish just ate him. Oh no, right? Like this isn't a good thing. Like I didn't think Jonah could get any lower than the bottom of the sea, but then God provides a fish and it eats him. Now he's inside a fish. Like this is as far down as he can possibly go. In the world of addiction and recovery, what do you call that? Rock bottom. As far away as he could possibly go, the lowest point, he is at the bottom of the sea in the fish's belly. But look what happens from inside the fish. Verse 1 of chapter 2. From inside the fish, Jonah prayed to who? To Yahweh. Finally! Finally, for the first time in this entire story, Jonah prays to Yahweh. And it's like we start to see what God's really been after the whole time, right? It wasn't just that God wanted Jonah to go to Nineveh. It's that God wanted Jonah. Even when God's word first came to Jonah in verse 1. Do you think God would have preferred an argument or a list of reasons from Jonah why he couldn't do it or why he wouldn't do it? Do you think God would have preferred a wrestling match? Like if the options are fight or flight, I think it's pretty clear God would choose fight every time. He wants his people to engage with him. He wants his people to respond to him. He wants his people to turn to him in their frustrations, in their fears, in the uncertainties, the doubts, the sins, the struggles, all the stuff that would tempt us to turn away from God. God's saying, no, turn towards me. Bring all of that to me. You don't have to censor your prayers. You don't have to tell me what you think I want to hear. God doesn't just want Jonah to go to Nineveh. He wants Jonah. He wants all of Jonah. And the worst thing that Jonah could possibly do is exactly what he did. Instead of engaging God, he runs away. So looking back, God clearly knew that this call to Nineveh was going to be incredibly hard for Jonah. But at the end of the day, God doesn't just want our obedience. Of course, he wants that. But he wants our hearts. We would have to know that he can handle our objections. He can handle our questions. He can handle our frustrations and our fears. The very fact that God speaks to us at all means that we are invited to respond. I love the way Eugene Peterson 
defines prayer. Answering God. Simply acknowledging that God's word has come into our life however it has. The invitation is to simply answer. To wrestle, to struggle. The worst thing we can do is to turn and to run away. And finally, at the end of this, this chunk of the story, Jonah prays. Jonah prays. And you get the sense that this is God's ultimate outcome for this part of the story, right? He just wants Jonah. So if the story ended here, um, first readers would have no idea whether or not Jonah was going to survive. So it's not really a happy ending. It's a mysterious ending. He's in a fish. Doesn't seem like a good thing. And so if you remember, Jonah serves as a representative for Israel, the people chosen by God to be his people and bless the nations. So here's the question that Hebrew readers would have been left with at the end of chapter one. Listen. Would God really allow the man who represents him to die so that other people can be saved? Which begins to remind us of another story, doesn't it? Begins to remind us of another man who was sent by God to represent God's God to the world. And that man also at one point found himself asleep on a boat in the middle of a storm. Let me read for you real quickly as we close. Mark chapter 4, a story about Jesus. That that day when evening came, he said to his disciples, let us go over to the other side, leaving the crowd behind him. They took him along just as he was in the boat. There were also other boats with him. A furious squall came up and the waves broke over the boat so that it was nearly swamped. Jesus was in the stern, sleeping on a cushion. The disciples woke him and said to him, Teacher, don't you care if we drown? He got up, rebuked the wind, and said to the waves, Quiet, be still. Then the wind died down, and it was completely calm. He said to his disciples, Why are you so afraid? Do you still have no faith? They were terrified and asked each other, Who is this? Even the wind and waves obey him. Yeah, so I'm fairly confident that the first readers of Mark's gospel would hear this story and immediately be reminded of the Jonah story. And the point is that Jesus is exactly like Jonah, except the exact opposite, right? <laughs> that Jesus obeys where Jonah disobeys. But then Jesus does something that Jonah couldn't do. Jonah could have spoken to God. Jesus speaks to the weather. And he tells the wind and the waves to be quiet. And they do. Which is pretty crazy. And it leaves the disciples with that question at the end of that passage. Who is this? Who is this that can speak to the weather, that can command control over the wind and the waves. Who is this? And what's the answer? The answer is that Jesus is Yahweh. He is the covenant God of Israel in the flesh. He is God who has come to us and become one of us and lived among us and in, in inaugurated God's kingdom reign among us in our world. Jesus is the same God who calms the sea in Jonah's storm. And so the Bible tells us that ultimately the reason Jesus came to earth was to accomplish the greatest act of salvation the world has ever known. That he calms the seas, not just on the sea that day. He calms the seas of sin and death and the devil. And just like Jonah, he calms those seas by willingly being thrown overboard. And as Jonah sunk down to the depths of the sea and was swallowed by the great fish, so Jesus sunk down to the depths 
of the earth and was swallowed up by the grave. And later he would refer to that as the sign of Jonah, three days and three nights in the grave. But Jonah was thrown overboard because he would rather die than return to God. And Jesus was thrown overboard because his death was the only way any of us could ever turn to God. So Jonah died out of stubbornness, and Jesus dies out of love. So in Jesus, we have a God we can run to. We have a God we can trust. We have a God who has entered into our storm, our suffering, and our sin, and he knows exactly what it's like to struggle the way you struggle, to be tempted the way you're tempted, and to wrestle with wanting to do God's will, but also wanting to do my own. Jesus knows what that's like, and he invites us to come to him, to wrestle with him, to struggle with him. Whatever fears, doubts, sins, struggles, objections we have, we have a God in Jesus who we can run to. And that's the good news, Jonah chapter one. Will you pray with me? Lord Jesus, we are so thankful for all that you've done to bring us in to your family and to make us your own. And we know that there are great costs that come with following you. But we know that, that it costs us nothing compared to what it cost you for us to come into you, to share in your life, for our sins to be forgiven, for our souls to be healed. And so I would pray for myself and for my brothers and sisters here at Antioch this morning. Lord, would we turn to you? Would we run to you? Would we pray and find our home within you? And Lord, would you transform us into a community of people that as a result of receiving your grace will become a compelling witness of your goodness and grace and love and mercy and justice to this city and to the world. We pray this in Jesus' name.